Hello, and welcome to the American Sheep Industry Association's Research Update. I'm your host, Jake Thorne. To state it plainly, no other time of year has as great of an impact on the success of our traditional sheep enterprises as lambing season. For many, that time of year has arrived, or it will in short order. But regardless of if you choose to take on the challenge of lambing in the spring, fall, or even year-round, improving management during this critical time is really a never-ending pursuit. Lambing styles vary widely in the U.S., and really no two management schemes are exactly alike. But despite this, better preparation for lambing season is something we can all benefit from. And I'm hopeful that all our listeners can find great value in the wisdom of our speaker today, as we have brought in one of our industry's leading experts when it comes to animal health. Joining me is Dr. Cindy Wolf, DVM, former professor of veterinary medicine at the University of Minnesota's vet school, and longtime sheep producer herself. Dr. Wolf, it's great to have you. Thank you, Jake. Uh, a little bit about before before we get you yeah before we get started, it would be fantastic if you could give us just a little background about yourself. You know, both your professional career and and your involvement in the sheep industry, if you don't mind. Sure. Um, a little bit about me. I uh, grew up on the East Coast in Maryland and went to vet school in Virginia, and uh, moved to Minnesota for a job at the College of Veterinary Medicine. And that's where I met my husband, who's a sheep and beef farmer. So um, those of you who are married to farmers, you know that kind of once that happens, you don't really move very far away. Um, I worked for more than 30 years teaching veterinary students. And uh, um, a few years ago, um, moved home permanently and do a little vet work and uh, try to help at our farm where we raise beef cows, sheep, and more and more goats. Um, and guard dogs. So that's there you go. Yeah. Lots of irons in the fire. Yeah. So Dr. Wolf, uh, we're talking about preparation for, for lambing season uh, this time. And, and before we get started, uh, you know, or before we dive too deep, I should say, really lambing styles across the U.S. vary drastically uh, from low input range operations to, to intensively managed farm plucks. What is there to gain by having a prepared approach to lambing season, regardless of your management style? Well, I think it's like anything we do. If we can be organized going into it, the outcome's going to be better, and we're going to enjoy uh, the work that we experience. So that's kind of what it comes down to. Um, if it's not enjoyable, it also means we weren't organized. Yeah, fair enough. And I, I know we're already in spring, uh, but when does preparation for lambing really begin? I start thinking about preparation for lambing um, prior to breeding. I start thinking about, well, if I'm going to go to this work, at least in our part of the country, I'd like as many ewes as possible to have at least two lambs. Uh, so I look at the ewes and say, are they too thin or are they just right? And like our operation, for example, is kind of like a, a heifer if that first time lammer is a little thin, she doesn't do as well on her second lambing. So I try to address that they're in the right body condition score at breeding um, and that um, we keep them in that right body condition score. And uh, I used to think, well, I could eyeball these sheep and get an idea if they're, if they're in the right flesh state or not. And that's just not true. And that we've all been taught that and we've all kind of learned that the hard way. So it's a question of um, feeling those sheep and sorting them, having a way to um, 
keep them sorted so that anyone that's kind of flunking out of the main group has a place to go, um, whether that's on a trailer or whether that's in a group that can get more feed. Um, so that's where I'd start. And then um, if they haven't been sorted, hurry up and get that done a month before lambing. That's when we would sh- try to shear our wool sheep um, and vaccinate everybody um, ahead of lambing. And then again, you might have some old ewes that need to get sorted. You might have some ewes carrying triplets or quads that need to be sorted. But I call them a special needs group because I'm not discriminating against them. I just need to be able to give them um, extra feed and extra space. Sure, absolutely. And I think we'll we'll touch more on that in just a second. Um, but I did want to ask you too, does removal of problem use from the previous year Does that also play into that kind of early preparation for the next season's lambing? Yeah. And so I got a story about that right now, Jake. Um, We've got a a ewe that lambed yesterday and and she had twins and she, uh, those lambs are not full and um, they're in a barn, so they're not going to starve right away. But I just said, boy, something's not right. So I hopped in the jug and sure enough, she's got one side of her udder that's hard um, and, um, while I was standing there, I said, let's go back and look at last fall when she lambed. And sure enough, we wrote down that she had mastitis last fall. And so I didn't call her. And of course, um, Murphy's Law, she has twins. And when we get finished with the podcast, I'm going to try to graph one of her twins onto another you. So, and I could tell a story very similar to a vaginal prolapse like that, where I could see scar tissue when I went to sew up a you. And I thought, oh man, I'm the one who wasn't smart enough to call her. So to me, bad mothers, mastitis, vaginal prolapse, those are just no-brainers to let them go. Right, absolutely. Causes or, or saves you headaches next year. Yes. Uh, so so what are some conditions that we're concerned with as far as, as use, particularly in, in gestation, mid or late gestation? And, and what are some of the early signs of those problems uh, before they become full-fledged? Sure. Um, the most common one is uh, ketosis or pregnancy toxemia. Um, sometimes it's a little hard to tell, especially in confinement flocks and some shed lambing flocks, that it's actually that versus low calcium. So they're usually a ewe that's about seven to 10 days from lambing. They start to act like they don't want to be part of the group. They're off by themselves. They aren't eating, um, but we have to watch to know that they aren't eating normally. Um, And if it's not addressed, then that sheep's going to go down. Um, And then really we have a problem. So to me, it's like have a crook, pull that sheep in um, right away and treat her for both. You won't hurt her by treating her for both. Um, But you'd have to go with with my way, if you will, Um, not me. Um, too brazen or anything, but but for ketosis, we generally are going to give them something to boost their blood sugar. So two ounces of propylene glycol, um, probably some electrolyte drench, and um, and also believe it or not, um, a drug that came out is being called banamine, but its real name is flunixin. It actually helps these ewes recover, and then they go in their own little pen, if you will, so that they can have a smorgasbord of feed and and try to get them back on feed. 
Whereas um, milk fever sheep, they have actually a dilated pupil. So if they're inside or you close their eye and then you shine your cell phone light um, to that eye as soon as it opens, if that pupil doesn't constrict just as fast as your pupil by having a bright light shine in it, she's actually got low um, blood calcium. Um, And I treat them with calcium under the skin. And that's what I mean by treating them my way. We don't give it in the vein. We just give it under the skin and it's absorbed so that we aren't going to cause problems with their heart rhythm and they aren't going to die. If they didn't have low calcium and you gave it that way, they're still going to be okay. So those are the two most common things. We're going to have a risk here pretty soon because our spring is coming fast and grass is going to grow fast and be very lush where we risk grass tetany or low magnesium. And so um, I just pinched myself today and said, oh, I better start putting that magnesium in my mineral so that those ewes can be getting adjusted for when there's a big flush of grass. I knew this discussion today was going to be full of great advice. So, you know, we, we, a lot of times we think about these, uh, uh, these conditions, pregnancy toxemia, uh, milk fever, maybe in a U that's a little thinner. Uh, but are, those, are these also issues that can arise from overfeeding ewes or ewes that are in, in too high of a condition? Sure. You can have obese ewes get ketosis. Um, I've saw it. The worst I ever saw were some goats that had a really, boar goats had a really small area and they were fed free choice pellets and they were just obese and they went down with ketosis and generally that producer lost everything. Um, the other thing we can cause with, with over fatness, extreme over fatness is vaginal prolapse. And um, I used to work with a fellow in Pipestone and he used to say to me, they have a prolapse if they're really fat and they're on too much um, forage, I mean, dry forage, because their heads can't pop off, so the other end pops out. And so as you that stuck with me forever. Yeah, that's a good visual. So, uh, you know, we've, we've kind of talked a little bit about nutrition there, but what are some of the other management factors um, besides, besides feed that uh, will impact lamb survival? eventual lamb survival. Okay. So um, believe it or not, mothering instinct is tied to their body condition score at lambing. And so anybody who doesn't um, believe me about that or doesn't want to go back and make some heavy reading, think about the thin ewes you have at lambing time, how they tend to not be as good a mothers. And it's because their whole hormonal profile is off um, kilter, if you will, because they're so thin. So that's one issue. Um, we definitely should go back to feeling udders and make sure both halves of the udder feel the same. They're both soft and pliable and there appears to be good milk. So um, take that situation I explained early on. You know, in two more days, one of those lambs would be um, checking out from starvation on my mastitis U. Um, whereas if I look at her udder, it looks fine, but we need to feel those. Um, certainly any farm that's having... Uh, issues with lamb survival should think about jugging those those ewes and lambs for somewhere between 24 and 48 hours. Just make sure that, you know, 
everything is going the way it's supposed to be, the ewes eating well, the lambs nursing normally, et cetera. So we have a scenario that I see um, in Minnesota, and I'm sure it's true elsewhere. And I used to think it was related to people assisting ewes give birth. But you can see in ewes that are about 48 hours after giving birth where they just don't eat normally. And if we get our little digital $4 thermometer out, we check their temp and it's 104, 105, so it's elevated. And they have something going on. Usually I think it's just some inflammation in their in their uterus, not even a ewe that you would have had your hand in helping. Um, and they respond really well to some antibiotics and uh and flu nixon. Sometimes one treatment just turns that you around and she goes back to eating and making a normal amount of milk. Um, every, also, you, you go ahead. Well, I was just going to say we have, um, you know, a few listeners that are, are maybe not as experienced. What is the normal temperature of a, of a sheep body temperature? Right. So there's a lot of things published. And again, um, you're stuck with me with a lot of opinion. I think a normal temp should be between 102 and 103, assuming that you didn't have to go for a jog to be caught to have her temp checked. Now, maybe in Texas, it might be a little higher. You know, you said you'd be 91 degrees there tomorrow. So maybe some of those sheep are going to be a little higher. But in, in our Midwest, if they're above 103, that, that's a fever. Yeah. Right. Okay. Uh, and you mentioned jugging. Um, you know, that, I think that's a good segue into the next thing I, I wanted to bring up. What, what considerations need to be made as far as preparing facilities for lambing? And I think let's start from a, a shed lambing perspective. Okay. Um, well, sheep feel stress just like any other species. So you want to have enough room that those ewes can have their sort of favorite spots that they go and lamb without having too much crowding or too much mismothering. And so experienced sheep producers could shake their heads and say, yeah, I've seen that. You know, they have these two corners that they that they love to lamb in. And so those corners um, need to be available. And they need to get new bedding every couple days so they don't get soggy. And then we talk about setting up jugs. Um, if, uh, if we're going to set up jugs, we have to be ready for that rush that happens about 10 days into lambing. And uh, we all say, oh, I had so many ewes lamb today. Well, that's biology. That's what you want if you manage things well. So we want to have about 15% um, of our um, flock. So if it's 100 ewes, you want to have about 15 jugs available. And that way, if you had a problem you that you didn't want to turn out, um, then you could leave her in. And that way, too, when you have those couple real busy days, you have space for everything. Um, the other thing that's important, I think, in any kind of lambing is ewes need to be active. So they don't need to walk for a mile between their feed and their water, but they need to do some walking. So tight confinement makes that metabolic rate go down and we have more issues. So I like them to have enough room that they're going to do um, at least a couple hundred yards of walking every day. Uh, I don't like to walk in a barn and see them all body condition score five, which I used to tell my students, you set a plate on their back. And they could walk the length of wherever they live and the plate wouldn't fall off. That's how fat they are. <laughs> that's, a, that's a again, a, a great example. Okay, so you said about 15% of the flock uh, for the correct number of jugs, but you might not need that um, the entire time. It's really that, that rush period that you really are, are trying to set up for. Correct. So 10% would be a good minimum. 
Okay, 10% good enough. All right, how about the same question as far as preparation of facilities uh, from a, a pasture lambing scenario or a range lambing scenario? What, what makes a, a good pasture for lambing in or, or what doesn't? What are some factors that producers need to think of? I, I like to make sure it's a pasture where every mouthful is a really solid bite, you know, not, not a sparse pasture, because we don't want those ewes to lay down lamb and have to do a lot of walking, filling up her, all of a sudden she's starving, you know, she's got a lot more room and you don't want her to walk a lot because if she had a set of twins or triplets, they're not used to walking a lot. Um, same true for water. Um, we want it to be pretty accessible, um, but not uh, a really long walk. So that's important. Now, the flip side is, is what's not good? Well, we have a situation in May where our feed can get as tall as your knee, it seems like almost overnight. And that's a challenge because it's not going to be as good a quality feed. And it's harder for the person who's walking out there or on their Polaris or their horse to see things um, because land are pretty well hidden in that knee high grass. Now, one thing that's hard for me is to say how much shade, how much protection they need, because anytime you give lambing ewes some woods um, and rain comes, we're more apt to see two things. One, some mastitis, and the other thing we might see are some umbilical infections, some navel infections. So I like woods, but I um, also know with it's a real rainy climate, there's some challenges. But I do know that watching sheep, that they're smart enough to go in those woods or get behind a hill if a, if we're going to have a couple days of rain and we'll have better lamb survival. So it's kind of a challenging one. It's nice to have that if we can. I have a question, uh, not to put you on the spot here, but if a producer does shear ahead of lambing, is that going to help those use? Uh, seek some cover for that lambing experience or or is that a, a good or bad thing maybe? Well I think it's a good thing for several reasons. One they do seek shelter so it's a better they seek a better place to lamb. Um, secondly for the manager if you will it's easier for us to see what's going on a whole lot easier. We also have a scenario in May where they can get cast on their back in late pregnancy with a full fleece of wool whereas that doesn't happen in a shorn ewe. So I think it's a, a very useful thing to shear them. The only time I'd be really careful is if they were too thin, uh, then I think twice about it. Okay. Okay, I think you're gonna have a great answer to this next question. Uh, instead of asking you about every item that you keep on hand uh, from a health perspective, um, what are your must haves when it comes to tools or medicine when you're preparing for lambing season? Okay. Well, if you're a producer who dips navels, I'm just going to share something we switched to a couple years ago based on a, what a pathologist at a diagnostic lab told me. He said, take your strong iodine and mix it 50-50 with ethyl alcohol, not isopropyl, ethyl alcohol, um, and you'll have better drying. So that's definitely been true for us. Um, if you don't dip now, I mean, you know, maybe it works fine to not dip your umbilical cords. I'm not going to tell you what to do. Um, I always have those clear stomach tubes. Um, <clears throat> I have new ones for every lambing season. Um, and then I, I'm kind of a 
old dog hard to learn a new trick. I like those 140 mil syringes because I can give that many more ounces to a lamb than using a little 60 mil syringe. Um, I have a crook. I'm kind of um, not a very tall person. So I like these lightweight fiberglass crooks and um, instead of the some longer, heavier ones. Um, I like to have eye clips. I'm not going to tell you I never see Antropion and that's a real nice way to fix those. And if you've never had an eye injury, we can really relate. Uh, or if you have had an eye injury, you can relate to what these lambs feel like when they have a uh, rolled in lower eyelid or entropion ca causing a corneal ulcer. They just don't do as well, whether they're in confinement or out in pasture or range. And then again, if you don't paint brand everything, I'm not going to tell you you should, but it's nice to have some paint available. So if you had an animal that was that you wanted to watch, you had a nice way to watch it, whether you put a big red dot on it or or whatever system you use. But it's hard to tell somebody, keep an eye on that white lamb out there and there's 99 other ones. They aren't going to have a clue one. Absolutely. And those all sound like great tools. Uh, you know, on one hand, it, it's really important, obviously, to be prepared and have all the necessary equipment and, and all the facilities. But I think I'm, I'm, you know, also want to speak from the perspective of maybe it's someone that's new into the sheep business. You know, what are the best way for shepherds to get prepared, but still make financial sense as far as the stuff that they purchase and the facilities that they build or set up? Are, are there common mistakes that you've seen um, over the years regarding purchasing or over pre preparation that could be avoided by somebody that's just getting started? Well, that is about the only good thing about COVID is the webinar educational opportunities are are freely out there. Um, but on the other hand, I think that um, every producer, one thing they cannot um, sacrifice is going to help another experienced producer during lambing before they get into their first or second um, lambing season. They're definitely going to learn more, especially if it's a bigger operation where they're apt to have a few problems just because of the volume. Um, they're apt to learn some things that they that they really need and a lot of things they probably don't need. Um, so I, yeah. I see some small producers sort of over-invest um, in their handling facilities, um, maybe even over-invest in having this kind of fancy sheep when they just really need to learn about sheep first. So yeah. th that's kind of the, how I'd answer you, Jake. Okay. And you brought it up earlier in the podcast, and I, I want to circle back to this. I want to ask you about this concept of, of passive immunity and, and vaccinating pregnant use. Um, you know, what is passive immunity and should we be vaccinating all of our pregnant ewes or instead of the lambs or, or both? Or, or what's your perspective on that? Well, I think it's very much more efficient to go ahead and vaccinate pregnant ewes. You want to be at least 30 days out if you've forgotten and you're only two weeks out, I'd still vaccinate those pregnant ewes. Um, and then that you um, puts immune proteins, or we're all much more familiar now with the term antibody in her colostrum. Um, and then those lambs drink that colostrum. Uh, ideally, they get their colostrum in them in the first six to 12 hours, and then they absorb those immune proteins or antibodies and have some passive immunity. Um, it'll last about three-ish, maybe four weeks. Um, and then in flocks that are 
on going to be on really rich pasture or they're on um, heavy, uh, really good creep feeding systems, then normally we start vaccinating those lambs at between six and eight weeks of age. Um, so that okay. I wanted to ask you how, how successful it was vaccinating, you know, young lambs that are one, two weeks or even less, you know, that's, that's something that's maybe pretty common in industry. You know, is, is that the right, right thing to do? Are they, are those lambs absorbing that vaccine properly? Um, that's a good question. They can respond to that vaccine, but when, like, if, if I was talking about my own operation, um, the lambs that I would be questioning or needing to vaccinate would be lambs I pulled off use and was raising on milk replacer. So I'd have to question if they even got mm-hmm. colostrum. Um, so if they got colostrum, they're already protected. If we don't know that they got a lot of colostrum, I guess I'd give them the 25 cents worth of vaccine. Um, and then if they're milk replacer lambs, which we'll talk about some more, um, I would repeat that um, every three weeks for um, three doses. And I'd hope that they respond. Okay. And and for those that are maybe unaware, you know, what vaccine are we even talking about that we're giving use mid-gestation and these lambs? Right. So um, we use uh, clostridial vaccines. So we have three choices. One is, that's just called CD and T, um, one that's a seven-way or one that's an eight-way. Any of those, if you're using that, that and it's working well on your farm, that's just fine. And people... Um, kind of say, why Why do I need to vaccinate? I've never had a problem. Well, the way that clostridial diseases show up is normal bacteria inside that sheep or lamb, and then something tips the balance and those bacteria multiply. And we have about between four and eight hours for that animal to be sick and then dead. So most of the time, we don't even see them and then they're dead. And so we'll have several die in the couple day period. And we'll be like, you know what? I could have bought myself lots of vaccine and prevented problems. Absolutely. Now, thinking back to vaccination before lambing, you know, are there other vaccines that producers should consider other than clostridials um, that may be beneficial for lamb survival or whatnot? Um, Some flocks know that they've had um, problems with abortions from chlamydia and also from campylobacter. Um, those are not always easy vaccines to get from a supply standpoint. Um, but if um, you're a flock that's had a problem and you know somebody else who's had a similar problem, you may be able to get vaccine made, especially if you're a big flock, it's cost effective. Um, you know, and if you're a small flock, try to get it commercially available first. Um, and at some point soon, probably soon being less than the next three or four years, we'll have probably commercial vaccines that have both of those in there, um, which is real good. Some of us call Campylobacter Vibrio. Um, so those are the same same bug, if you will. Okay. How would a producer go about identifying if they have those abortion diseases present on their farm? Yeah, it's one of the most frustrating um, times for producers when they come out and they find an abortion and another abortion and another abortion. So um, one thing to remember is um, that the placenta is very, very diagnostic tissue. So we really need placenta submitted with those aborted fetuses. 
We can't help that those aborted fetuses are dirty, you know, because they're never like born into a bag. Um, and I collect two or three of them if I can and get them to a lab while they're fresh enough to be good material. Um, but I recognize that about half the time we're going to make a diagnosis, which is why I like to um, talk to the doctor who's going to be doing the work and say, hey, if I give you three, could you please just charge me for one submission? Because reality is if we give them multiple fetuses, we're more likely to make a diagnosis than if we only get one. And then again, I'm a veterinarian, but I like those fetuses to go as whole fetuses with placentas. I don't feel like the, the veterinarian in the field needs to cut anything up. Let the lab go ahead and try to work with the whole fetus. Okay. And speaking of diseases and, and handling aborted fetuses and, and uh, placentas, you know, are any of these potential diseases zoonotic and, and what precautions should a producer make to avoid any possible human contraction? Good question. So we're all experts at washing our hands now and wearing masks. No, but in all seriousness, um, I think if you start to see an abortion storm on your farm, it'd be um, good practice to try to leave your barn clothes and your barn um, footwear uh, in your garage or outside your back door rather than bring them in. I think that it's really on you um, ethically to to protect your family, to submit fetuses and placentas to try to figure out what it is. And then really we don't need to have any face-to-face -face contact with our sheep. Um, granted, most of these agents are being passed in the abortion fluids and, and are maybe on the lamb. But like when lambs are born, let's say um, that it's born alive and you're having a hard time keeping it breathing, um, we could talk about that. Jake as well, but there's a way we could pass the stomach tube part way and, and try to help that lamb breathe through its stomach tube. There's also um, a spot on the lip of a lamb that's an acupressure point to stimulate breathing. We all know the straw technique where you can poke inside its nose with anything sharp, a pen, a piece of straw, whatever, and try to stimulate it. So we don't need to have our face right on those baby lambs faces. So yes, do we have some infections that can go from sheep to people? Yes. Um, they're not that common. If you um, are not pregnant, um, you probably didn't even ever know if you had the problem. But if you are pregnant, you want to be just common sense careful is the way I like to say it. Right. Absolutely. Okay, and, and again, something you brought up earlier was bottle lambs or, or bummer lambs, and I want to go back to that. Uh, what are some of, of the preparation steps for producers that they can take for those for those lambs that can't be reared by their dam? You know, what what kind of tools maybe are, are beneficial and or facility setups um, to be able to raise those lambs artificially? So those lambs, whatever pens you have that you're going to use should be close to sort of your main focus of activities. So it's easy to um, observe and work with those lambs. Um, it, you have to decide how many you're likely to have and decide if you want to raise them on a bottle or a bucket or on a um, Lactec type machine, a machine that um, mixes the milk replacer for you and, and keeps a constant supply um, at the nipples that are set up inside the pen. We like to, um, one, tag those lambs because we might not want to keep them. So we tag them and we also paint brand them. So if there's communication among um, anybody who's there, we can all be talking about the same lamb. 
Um, I, like I say, I vaccinate the ones we put in the milk replacer pen on a schedule um, because I'm not sure what they had for a class for um, passive immunity. And I think they're on a lot of free choice milk. Um, and then this is probably the most important thing in my mind as well as what I've already mentioned is to already have purchased your um, really um, palatable creep feed and have it in there from, from at least day three onwards because you want to wean those lambs. You want to wean them ideally at about five or six weeks or or whenever you think they're big enough. I don't want to tell people how big enough they need to be because we all raise different breeds. But like at home, we try to wean them around 25 pounds. And we're successful at that because they have that creep there and they eat that just fine. Right. Absolutely. And before we started this afternoon, uh, you and I were having a, a little conversation about a lamb that you're potentially going to foster onto a, a new mother. Um, do you have some favorite tools or some techniques that help that process actually work out a little better? Um, well, I just try. Let me put it that way. And uh, so what I'm going to do this afternoon is I'm going to do something that's maybe unappealing to a new shepherd, but that's where I'm going to skin the dead lamb and put that um, live lamb in a in this nice clean skin. I'd be careful to not get blood on it. And most of that um, lamb is covered up. Uh, and and I leave that skin on for a couple days in hot weather where you are. It might not be able to stay on more than a day and a half. In my climate, it could probably stay on three, four days. I take them off. I take that skin off once and for all after a couple days at night where the U is less apt to even notice. Um, and then the two other options for me are a wet graft. So we um, have some birth fluids, um, add a little warm water, and I... Um, could take a newborn lamb, get it all wet and give it to the ewe as though she had just lambed. Um, but this, in this situation, um, that ewe is not, she lambed yesterday. So that's not close enough in time. And then the third one um, is an interesting one from an animal welfare standpoint. I don't think it's cruel, but I'm going to give you my caveats. I might um, put that ewe in a stanchion for two days careful with the stanchion that it's built that the lambs can't crawl in front of her nose and they um, and that you is confined well enough that she can trample the lamb so she can get up and lie down and she can do everything she needs to do except um, turn around in her pen and after two days I let her out and she either accepts that lamb or she doesn't if she doesn't accept it I don't put her back in the stanchion and I kind of watch things. If they're all fine, I'll leave the lamb there. If they're not fine, like she's pushing that lamb around with her head, then I'll take the lamb out and just say, okay, I guess you're not raising a lamb this year. Right. Uh, and again, for maybe some of our newer producers, what is the goal you're trying to accomplish by putting the lamb skin on the still alive lamb. Sure. So it's so that way it smells like her lamb. And and so we're trying to fool her. And this particular you, she really wants a lamb. So that's why I think she's a good candidate to try. Okay, great. Okay, so many uh, sheep producers, very independent folks just by nature. But what role can a veterinarian play in a successful lambing season? Sure. Well, there are a lot of veterinarians who, believe it or not, are interested in sheep and goats. And um, 
I didn't realize there was that much good about Facebook, but the good thing about Facebook is um, there are veterinarians who don't do um, tons and tons of sheep work who post pictures and questions um, and get some really good information from some older veterinarians who are experienced. And it doesn't cost these, these veterinarians anything other than, you know, the few minutes of their time. Um, and so I, I found this one source to be quite interesting, how many different kinds of questions are being asked. So don't undervalue your veterinarian, but be fair to your veterinarian and give them all the information. Um, like they don't, we don't want to give them a novel, but we want to be fair and tell them how old the lamb was when it died. Was it a triplet or was it a single? Oh, and by the way, if it was a single, it weighed 18 pounds at birth. You know, that's as bad a risk factor some days as a five pound lamb. Um, and so, and then um, let them know what you want for expectations. So a veterinarian who has a um, experience should be able to help diagnose um, just with what we call a gross necropsy, whether it's at the clinic or at their farm, um, opening up your lamb and saying, this is what I see. Here's what I th how I think this all developed. Um, and here's what I recommend you do for treating. And here's what we should talk about for a plan for prevention. And be sure you get to that last step, because that's really why you're there, is you want to know how to avoid this thing that's costing you money. And then the other thing that's pretty important, and you can get it from a 30-year-old veterinarian or a 60-year-old veterinarian, is um, some veterinarians really have an experienced eye who can help you see on your operation things that are your strengths and things that are your weaknesses. And they might be things that you just see every day and you just need a third party to say, well, you know, maybe if we just change this one thing, it'll make a 60% improvement. Um, so that's what your veterinarian should help you do. Right. Absolutely. Great. So I know this is a podcast about preparing for lambing, but part of preparation is being able to look back and assess how previous years have gone. How does a producer gauge whether what they have done in the past was successful or unsuccessful? I think that really comes down to keeping track of um, your successes and your losses. So we, um, those of us who raise wool sheep, we know how many sheep we have because we had a shearing tally, right? Or we ultrasounded and we had an ultrasound tally. And so we need to we need to put some of these things down on paper or in a computer, and we really need to analyze them. How many ewes went with how many rams? How many ewes were pregnant? Maybe you fetal count. How many um, ewes delivered live lambs? How many lambs were found dead? That's pretty important at birth. And also it's pretty important how many lambs died at birth. Um, and I don't mean literally at birth. I mean like that first two weeks. Um, and then... Um, if you're not comfortable with your veterinarian and you're not comfortable opening up your own lambs, which is true for most of us, then maybe we should set up a school one day where we teach people some normal anatomy, normal things inside lambs. For example, we opened up a lamb yesterday and it had some bruising around its um, bladder. And the young veterinary student I was working with said, oh, my goodness, look at that. I said, oh, no, that's normal. That's just what happens when they're born. Their umbilical cord stretches and seals shut and that bruising is always there on the bladder. So, you know, somehow we need to know why they died. And then um, 
um, put all that together. When you're not tired, when lambing's all done, summarize your findings, um, do some graphing because that really gets our attention. Um, so I'll give you the best example. If you graphed how many ewes lambed a day, how many lambs were born each day, guess what you'll find is your mortality rate was good up until the time you got 75% of the way through lambing. And then your mortality rate started climbing a little. And why is that? Maybe your ewes were getting too fat. Maybe your observation wasn't as good. You know, there's a jillion different reasons, but maybe you should shorten your breeding season. So your lambing season's shorter and you can stay focused on what we need to focus on. That's great. Absolutely. Now, on the flip side, I mean, is there really such a thing as over-management during lambing? Can we can we get into trouble where we're putting too much input into this time period? Uh, that's a good question, Jake. Um, so I'm not a big fan of using cameras, maybe because I'm too cheap. Um, and so I think they might drive me crazy because I look at how, yeah. how connected I am to my phone. So I'd probably get the same way about that with cameras. And then I also watch some of the smaller flocks, especially with some potentially very valuable lambs, even before they're born, do a little more assisting at birth than, than I'm happy with. And I think you can then mask ewes that um, can do just fine without us. And then you also mask the ewes and keep ewes that are not doing fine without us. Um, so I think we have to um, be cognizant of that. Now, the flip side is, is like a, a set of twins I brought down this morning. We didn't have a good day yesterday. So when I brought this set of twins in to jug them, um, they seem to be kind of like already a little dumb. And so I just suckled those lambs. And the one that didn't suckle well, I just milked the ewe and tubed the lamb. And I knew it had colostrum and calories and should be fine. And sure enough, it is now fine. Um, they're both fine. So that some people may think is a little overkill, but to me, that was the best thing I could do um, to never have to deal with those lambs again. Their mother and them are going to do the work from here forward. Right. Great. And, and so, you know, lambing can be exhausting, absolutely, both physically and mentally. Uh, as someone who has, has been through lambing many times, what has all you always really kept you going through that really challenging uh stressful, exhausting period. And how do you prepare for that ahead of time? Well, I would like to tell you as a sensible person and I banked up my sleep. Um, so that would be a good idea. Uh, I would also like to tell you that I got in even better shape so that my hamstrings and my back were always happy. Um, those would all be good ideas. I'm fortunate that um, usually the times of year that we lamb, uh, our bigger groups, spring is coming in. So I get to see my first bluebirds or I see swans flying over um, or I see something ridiculous like yesterday, which was a month old guard dog nursing off a um, still pregnant, but very naive ewe lamb. Um, so some of those little moments that you have really help you get through the exhaustion um, and and then I do, you know, things like fall asleep on a wool bag. I think it's really some and still putting some wool in burlap bags because it makes a really good place to take a nap. Um, and then I'm also sure that we have some good chocolate and good coffee. That's how I yeah. as I say, buy a bigger coffee pot. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Uh, Dr. Wolf, this has been great. Um, uh, you've 
provided a tremendous amount of information over the last 45 minutes or so. But what would be one key element from our discussion today that you'd like producers to take away from from this podcast this month? What is what is really one take home message um, that you'd like to leave them with? I think that the thing that has helped me the most is to um, have a system where you know what are your um, best and average performing use, keep their daughters, and and system that you can identify and call your poor performers. Right. That's great. Again, um, I really want to thank you for joining us today. We're, we're kind of running a little short on time, but this has been a great discussion and I, I really enjoyed visiting with you. Thank you, Jake. Sure. Uh, so unfortunately, that about does it. Uh, but as always, we'll be back next month uh, with a new topic. But for now, here's to the joys that come with a success, successful lambing season and the daily reminders that we are really lucky to get to be a part of this great industry. Uh, I'll leave you with this ancient saying from an unknown source. May your twins be plentiful and up in nursing before you even get there. Eat lamb, wear wool. We'll see you next month.